You're listening to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. For part two of today's program, we're going into the Morning Show archives for a conversation from 2018 with Lee Berman and Jeremy Bernard, two former White House social secretaries. Lee Berman served in the administration of George W. Bush, and Jeremy Bernard served in the administration of Barack Obama. And together, they have written a book called Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life, published by Scribner. One of the intriguing things that is said early in the book, uh, Treating People Well, is that the White House is, in a sense, two things at the same time. It is this place of sort of majestic importance in our political life, and yet it's also a, a party venue. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real place. It's a real building. Uh, I wonder if you could just say a word about how sort of keeping those two realities in balance was one of the more challenging uh, aspects of the work that you uh, each did as social secretary for the White House. Well, it, it always felt like you were at, you were going to work, but you were also working in and out of someone's home. And so uh, there were events throughout the day. They weren't just parties. There were, were press statements and press conferences, or the president might have an announcement or an address to the nation. Anything that happened at the White House, uh, whether it's been in the mansion or in the Rose Garden or South Lawn, was the responsibility of the social office. The only exceptions were the press room and the Oval Office. So it was constant change from one event to the other. Some days we'd have four events, some days we might have one. But it became so common, in a sense, for there to be it, common for there to be constant change that it was fairly easy to adjust to that. And it's like everyone. People have their homes, and they are in part for entertaining, and they are part for their living spaces that are private. Hmm. Early in the book, you write, it's not easy to keep friends on the other side of the aisle in Washington, where people's uh, careers and success are often built on the fortunes of the political party they serve. In Washington, your politics are your living and your identity. Uh, you are from different sides of the political aisle, at least in terms of the presidency that you served. Uh, Lee, you served uh, President George W. Bush and, and his wife, Laura. Jeremy, you, of course, served uh, President Obama and his wife, Michelle. Uh, how is it that the two of you met and became friends? And what did it feel like to collaborate, in a sense, across the aisle on this book? We met because all of the former social secretaries have kind of a loose group who meet regularly and get to know each other and offer our help and support and advice to whoever the current social secretary is, which is how Jeremy and I met. But, you know, we remain friends because the social secretaries have always understood that we want to put our best foot forward from the White House, and it doesn't matter who the president is. So we understand the need for working together. And it's part of how we came to the idea of writing the book. We want people to understand in their everyday lives that things have become too partisan in many cases, and we don't have to have politics in everything. And in fact, when we insist on injecting politics into 
every situation, all we're doing is making an enemy out of someone who simply has a different point of view. As part of the book's introduction, uh, you say the Bushes and the Obamas uh, are, were, more similar than one might think. What were you getting at there? What were the most important similarities uh, between those two couples? And, and in a sense, then, between your, ex- your relative re- respective experiences in working with them? Well, I think it, in part that they both had uh, families. They, uh, the Bushes had two daughters, as did the Obamas, uh, living at the White House. And so they, they had to balance having a very public life and a very private life that did not uh, make it too uh, overwhelming or, or too much of a, a public focus on their daughters. And at the same time, they, they both wanted people, no matter which side of the aisle they were or what their beliefs were or where they were from, to feel welcomed and to bring as many people into the White House, especially those that had not been before. And so they both had kind of the same, very different political views, but the same outlook on how people should be treated and how they should welcome people and we should welcome people into the House. We're speaking with Lee Berman and Jeremy Bernard about their book, Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life. Uh, uh, Lee Berman, you tell us that uh, that you uh, worked early on uh, for actually Vice President Cheney uh, and, uh, and for yeah. a time for his wife as well before shifting over to become the uh, social secretary of, of the White House. And you tell us that that was actually a, a very dramatic shift. I don't remember exactly the words, but I think it was to the effect that, that becoming White House Social Secretary, Secretary was like landing on an alien planet. What was most <laughs> dramatic about that shift, which uh, to an outside observer m- might not seem to be actually all that dramatic? Well, there were actually two shifts. I had been a um, full-time mom for 10 years when I went to work for the Cheneys. And I went from being in the carpool line one day to being in the White House and learning how to use White House email and the security measures required by the Secret Service and moving Mrs. Cheney and things that I'd never even thought of before in my life. And once I got that under my belt and I worked for the Cheneys for several years, I left government and I thought I was finished. And then I ended up being back at the White House working for the Bushes. And there is an enormous difference between the vice presidential operation and the presidential operation. People working on the vice presidential side tend to sort of move under the radar. People don't pay as much attention. There's not as much scrutiny. When you move over to the presidential side, then all of the staff, the women and mostly women and some men who worked in the East Wing, have to be very conscious of everything they do because they are a reflection of the First Lady. And so it changes you your attitude about how you do things and you think about things very carefully because you don't want to embarrass them or do something that would be stupid. Um, And so that is part of why it was such a big change and it's also much more visible. Mm. Jeremy Bernard, uh, your appointment as White House Social Secretary was noteworthy in a couple of different ways. If I understand correctly, you were the first male to be appointed to that position and you were also the first openly gay person to hold that position. I think 
quite a lot has been said about the latter, uh, and you're welcome to say what else you, know, you you want to say about that. But in some ways, I'm I'm even more intrigued by the first part, the fact that you were the first male ever appointed to that position. I wonder, uh, going into the position, did you have much sense that that was noteworthy and headline news uh, in the way that the, 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 uh, the other matter was? And do you think that made much difference in the way that you were uh, received? I don't, I do not believe it made much of a difference of the way I was received. I think it, because it was noteworthy and, and it was something that the press uh, wrote a lot about at the time, it was a little bit more in, you know, it, it was a little more obvious. It was a little bit more out there. But for, from the moment I got in the White House, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about, oh, this is always uh, an office that was, you know, occupied by a woman. I didn't think about uh, anything other than putting my nose to the grind and going to work. I, I wanted to keep a low profile. I, I, there had been enough uh, PR about my getting the job. Now I wanted to get the work done and to, because it wasn't about me and it wasn't about what, what I did. It, it was about implementing the Obama's vision of what the White House should be. One of the intriguing metaphors uh, that you use in the book to describe the heart and soul of, of your duties within the four walls of the White House was when you said, we were old-fashioned beat cops. Explain what that metaphor is all about. That's certainly intriguing. Well, the social secretary is almost like a housekeeper in someone's house, and she feels responsible for, or he feels responsible for, everything that they see that's going on. And so I would sometimes find myself standing in the diplomatic reception room minutes before a, a foreign uh, state arrival ceremony saying, Mr. Vice President, you stand there. Secretary of State Rice, will you please go behind him? And lining them up, you know, like a teacher in a classroom. And they'd go out, and one minute later I would be down on my knees on the red carpet pulling up a piece of lint that had appeared from somewhere. Wherever there was a problem, our job was to fix it and not to waste time blaming or figuring out what happened, just fix it. Uh, and the object was to keep things as smooth as possible because we cared very much about our guests having a wonderful, memorable experience. I appreciated the fact that you said uh, at one point that uh, working in the White House was not all ruffles and flourishes. And I think that's one thing that you do a really good job of doing in the book is to, in a sense, take us behind the scenes and uh, and really acquaint us with the nuts and bolts of the work that you were doing and uh, and, and helping us understand that that part of what you were doing was, in a sense, to make it look easy and, and effortless and flawless. But uh, the only way to do that was to work tremendously hard. I suppose that explains why... Uh, People tend not to hold these positions uh, for all that long. It, it has to be a grueling uh, sort of grind, I should think. It, it certainly is, and it was it obviously an honor, and it was a thrill. Uh, and with that, it was also exhausting because you were kind of always on call. And uh, But I think one of the things we wanted to really uh, make clear was that we had the, uh, the various problems 
uh, political, not in the political sense, but there's politics in every job. And there's dealing with different people and how to deal with them. And that our experiences really are not any different than other, anyone else's and everyone else's that's out there working or, or raising a family. It's that ours happened to be at the White House and there was a, there was a more emphasis on it uh, or more focus on it, but that the, the things that we came across, the issues we, we found and the things we learned are very similar to those of someone that works at, whether it be a movie studio or a corporate office or a, a small business, that the, many of the issues that we dealt with are similar to anyone else's in their job. And, and it, for them, it's just as important as it was for us in our job. Hmm. You uh, outline in your book, Treating People Well, 12 hallmarks of, of what that really, really means. And I think a lot of people reading your fascinating book will, will be surprised that the list starts with confidence, begin with confidence. And it's something you explore at great length. Uh, explain why confidence is at the heart of treating people well. I think it's hard to do very much in life without beginning with confidence. You know, um, you can't take charge, you can't radiate calm or manage conflicts if you don't have a certain level of self-confidence. And um, so we think that having a positive attitude and making an open-hearted approach to things is a great way to build that confidence. We also found that being very well prepared for whatever we were about to do gave us confidence because we'd spent enough time visualizing what we thought was about to happen and preparing for what might go wrong so that if it did, we could manage it quickly. Um, and then finally, we saw how important it was to receive reassurance from the first ladies and the presidents that we worked for, and they were very good about doing that. And the reassurance gave us confidence, and then we tried to always pay that forward with the people we worked with so that they knew when we were working together and having long hours and getting kind of tired that we trusted them, we counted on them, and, and we knew we had each other's back. Mm. I appreciated that this chapter uh, takes the time to to differ, differentiate between confidence and arrogance uh, because, of course, we tend to see a whole lot of the latter and maybe not as much of the former. And, uh, and, and part of what you are talking about, of course, is, is means understanding the difference. Uh, in your minds, what is the most significant difference between being confident and being arrogant? I think that being confident is understanding, feeling good about the job you do and that you're capable of doing it, and understanding that it is not you alone and it's with other people and that you are part of a team all working together. Arrogance is the feeling of uh, uh, the overconfidence. Arrogance is the feeling that I'm the best at this, I can do it on my own, and I don't need anyone else. It, it's, it's so easy to detect. It seems like it would be a fine line, but it's so easy to detect uh, in someone that is confident and someone else that, it's arrog that is arrogant. And, and so it, it, they're, they're both kind of start at the same place, but one goes way, way further in overconfidence and in, in becoming so full of oneself that you don't build confidence in others. The only thing you do <clears throat> is build yourself up, whereas real confidence not just his confidence in yourself, but, but
but building it in other people and making them feel confident. Right. That reminds me of the story, Lee, that you tell about the moment when First Lady Laura Bush decided to entrust you with approving uh, the daily menu at the White House, something which the, the chief usher told you had, had not been done in recent memory. And that was such a powerful gesture of confidence in you. It, it was, and it built such great loyalty in me to her. I was so surprised and grateful. It showed that she trusted me, and it showed other people on the staff that she trusted me. Because, you know, the White House resident staff is a bureaucracy. They uh, are wonderful people who stay through each president. Many of them have multiple generations of family members who serve in the White House. And any organization like that has a way of doing things. So a new person coming in might not always be listened to the way someone who's been there and been more established. And by showing her confidence in me, she helped the rest of the people that I worked with every day to see that it was okay to trust me and it was okay to listen to what I was asking them to do because they weren't really requests for me. They were requests coming from her through me. Hmm. One of the points on this list of 12 involves humor and the fact that humor can uh, often be a, a, a very important factor uh, in, in making situations better and can help us make us more resilient and, and better at, at, at handling challenges. Jeremy, you especially spend a lot of time talking about the way in which you used humor, and sometimes I, I should think in fairly daring fashion from the way you describe it. Just say a word about what a powerful tool humor was and, and, and what a tool it can be when we use it well. Uh, humor, in, in, in that, again, is another example of where confidence is so important because you need to have confidence in uh, having the humor before you can uh, go out there and, and feel like you're going to be humorous if you're not confident about it. But I, I think that it is really a key to putting others more at ease, especially in a tense or a stressful situation. And I saw my father, as I was growing up, use humor at difficult times to ease a certain tension. It didn't make, he wasn't making fun of the situation or belittling it, but it made everyone feel a lot less tense. And it's one of the things I found most effective, both with my staff and with the president and first lady. Now, I was lucky I, I, I'd gotten to know the Obamas at the very beginning of the campaign in, in 2007, so I had a comfort level with them. But uh, I think it's, it's no matter what workplace and what uh, situation, you have to read it well and know that it's, what you're saying isn't going to be offensive, but that self-deprecation especially is often a way to make people feel more at ease. Right. I wish we had more time. I want to spend our last minute or so talking about uh, what I am probably thinking about the most out of your whole book. It's when you talk about your fourth point, listen first, talk later. When you write, we live in a world of constant communication but lackluster learning. What is your advice to help all of us, whatever we do, even if we don't live in the White House and, or work in the White House, how can we do better in listening with care? I think we all need to slow down. I'm not sure that many of us realize this, but our brain moves 
so much faster than someone speaks. So if you're standing there talking to your boss and he's telling you something he wants you to do, while you're listening, you're also thinking, here's what I'm going to do, here's how I'm going to respond, um, I wonder what I should have for lunch, and um, I really have to get to the dry cleaners after work. And it's very hard to focus in because our brains work so fast. So if you can discipline yourself a bit to slow down and just listen to what someone is saying, give yourself a chance to think about it before you respond. And, you know, pausing before you answer is just a matter of showing some thoughtfulness and then answer and take your time. We don't need to race through life as we do because we miss so much. And when you're trying to have real communication with someone and really build up a relationship, you have to listen, you have to look between the lines and see that, you know, perhaps they aren't saying exactly what they mean, but they're hoping that you'll figure out what they really mean. So it just takes a lot more uh, attention. Well, you certainly uh, had great role models, both of you, in uh, the way you were listened to by uh, the respective first ladies with whom you worked. And uh, your story is just full of, 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 of amazing accounts of, of all that you did and experienced in your time in the White House. The book, again, is Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life, published by Scribner. The co-authors, Lee Berman and Jeremy Bernard. I thank both of you for writing this fascinating and inspiring book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. I was honored to speak with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you thank for you having so us on. Much.